This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Critical race theory recognizes that racism is endemic to American life. Federalism, privacy, and property interests serve as vessels of racial subordination. Critical race theory expresses skepticism toward dominant legal claims of neutrality, objectivity, colorblindness, and meritocracy. These sentences are not fabrications about critical race theory voiced by people who are upset about its introduction into American classrooms. These words appear in a book by four leading critical race theorists that's entitled Words That Wound, Critical Race Theory, Assault Speech, and the First Amendment. And they also go on to say how, how you prove this. Authors insist on recognition of the experiential knowledge of people of color to prove the theory. The authors say they use personal histories, parables, chronicles, dreams, stories, poetry, fiction, and revisionist histories. Well, few people question that this is, in fact, what critical race theory is about. Others have picked up much the same language who work in this field. But now we learn that the U.S. Department of Education has given two major grants to North Carolina Central University to train students to use critical race theory as a way of uh, assessing teacher quality and preparing teachers. So has the Biden administration thrown its weight behind this doctrine? To discuss the topic and the growing controversy over critical race theory, I have with me today Jonathan Butcher, co-author with Mike Gonzalez of the Heritage Foundation report on critical race theory, the new intolerance and its grip on America. Jonathan, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, great to be here. So Jonathan, first let me ask you about this latest revelation, and I think you may be the source for this story, uh, that uh, the Biden administration has been funding programs at uh, universities uh, to help teachers uh, use critical race theory in the classroom. Is that really happening or have I exaggerated that? No, you describe it well. This particular grant uh, provides uh, funding for a program that trains future social scientists or uh, students who are interested in doing research in education policy so that they do their research through the lens of critical race theory. They use the principles of critical race theory to define uh, the outline of their uh, investigations and then explain their analyses from the context of critical race theory. And you know, I think there are, there are a couple of, uh, of things that should give us pause about that, not, you know, not the least of which are the discriminatory elements in critical race theory, but also that there should be um, social scientists go into a report with a particular uh, bias in mind, right? I mean, we know that we all kind of have our predispositions, but the idea that we should be funding that and training students to do research accordingly, I don't think that that's a, a fair way to expect, you know, future researchers to be, to be conducting their analysis. Well, you know, I, I would be the last person to say we shouldn't be teaching critical race theory in our colleges and universities. I think exposing students to the uh, full range of ideas and approaches and theories uh, as they uh, progress with their uh, studies in college and, and graduate school. We want students to 
exposed to a lot of different ideas out there, but it seems to me this is a little different. This isn't saying, this is one of the things we want you to know about. This is saying you must use this, or this is what you should use to do your research and to, and to train teachers and to uh, work in the field. Well, I think you're right. And it also, this is very much in line with what we saw earlier this year when the U.S. Department of Education attempted to revise a grant program for the teaching of history and civics in K-12 schools. And in their proposed revision, they said that grant applicants, so this was a grant program where schools would apply for federal funding to teach civics and history. And the examples they used were the 1619 Project and How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, who of course was one of the leading contemporary critical race theorists. And so the Biden administration and you know, the Department of Ed made it very clear, right? The type of products that they were looking for schools to use. Um, so I, I think this is very much in line with what we've seen from this administration already. Well, you know, the 1619 Project you just mentioned, it, it's promoted by the New York Times and therefore it's gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of push. Uh, it's probably the best example we have of the way critical race theory might be used in the U.S. Cl classroom. And I think we now know that it's being used quite widely, maybe not pervasively, but quite widely in, in American schools. And you can read this document, and it, in fact, follows critical race theory um, uh, research uh, 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 practices. It's, it, they, you know, as I, I read to you before, uh, you're supposed to use personal histories, parables, chronicles, dreams, stories, poetry, fiction, and revisionist histories. And that's exactly what the 1619 Project does. It uses it. That's the kind of historical approach that it takes in its study of the way the fundamental forces that shape American society, which they say is racism, not liberty. No, that's right. And it's not just the approaches. I think that when Nicole Hannah-Jones in her opening essay said our founding documents were false when they were written is an attempt to undermine the principles that defined the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the ideas, I think, that America uniquely brought to the world when we're talking about offering freedom and opportunity to everyone, regardless of their immutable characteristics. And so I think that it changes the perspective from looking at the United States as a place that um, has this self-correcting mechanism that moved us away, albeit not as quickly as should have happened, but moved us away nonetheless from slavery, from the Jim Crow era eventually. Uh, these were things that are inherent in our representative constitutional republic. And I think that is unique to the United States, right? I mean, I think that historians have made the case that um, uh, I, uh, the, uh, the politics around abolitionist thinking did originate in the United States. So that's something that Sean Willens from Princeton has made, I think quite eloquently in, in at least one of his books. So I think for, for the 1619 Project to kind of turn that around and say, no, the United States is defined by slavery, it is defined by racism, and the Declaration and the Constitution, you know, are, 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 are not, not worth the paper that they're written on. Well, in that quote I read at the beginning there, there appears the word endemic that uh, 
uh, slavery and racism is endemic to the United States. Now, I looked up in the dictionary what the word endemic means. Uh, I found out about when I went to Hawaii and I learned that there were some plants endemic to Hawaii, only found in Hawaii, not found anywhere else in the world. It's one of the exciting things about going to some of those islands and going to some of the more remote places there is to see these endemic plants. And the dictionary captures that by saying it's prevalent in and peculiar to a specific locality, region, or people. Uh, so this is sort of what this word endemic means. It's, and you use the, the word unique in, in just your response. This, is, this racism is specific to the United States. It's something that doesn't appear anywhere else except in the United States. How can that claim be made? Yeah, you're exactly right, because it can't. I mean, slavery has existed for millennia. Uh, it has been something that uh, even today uh, still exists in some, in some nations on the other side of the world. Um, I think what is endemic to the United States is that we had a system that allowed for a self-governing people to intentionally and purposefully remove slavery and racism from uh, our system of government. Again, there, there were you know, failings and stops and starts along the way. And I think that that is what is so important to teach students about American history, right? Is that slavery was a part of our past and it was inconsistent with what we were intended to be and attempts to uh, abolish it, attempts to get rid of it um, were very difficult and took not just court decisions, but also law. And, uh, and that's why today that our generation is responsible today for teaching the next um, that this is what the future of America should resemble, right? It needs to be the place that does treat everyone uh, according to their decisions and their behavior and not according to their ethnicity or, or their sex. So it's, that's not what the 1619 Project says. I'm sorry, Jonathan, about that, but they do not teach that. They say that in fact, the Re American Revolution was fought, in the original text that the 69 Project says, was fought primarily to sustain racism once Britain had decided that there shall not be slavery anymore. And so uh, how, do you, how do you respond to this uh, interpretation of what the purpose of the American Revolution was? Was it to preserve slavery? or as you say, to fight for freedom? Well, I mean, look, award-winning historians like Gordon Wood, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, were again making the case that the American Revolution uh, was not fought by colonists with the primary intent of preserving slavery. And there's ample evidence to demonstrate that. Uh, I think that uh, this is because the New York Times made their own slight correction after significant pushback, actually, to this idea. Um, uh, in fact, there was the professor from Northwestern who wrote about this for Politico, you know, after she was asked to review the 1619 project and she told them that that particular claim was not correct. And uh, when they did not listen to her, she wrote her response in Politico. And then a couple of weeks later, the New York Times backtracked on that statement. I, I also think what's interesting about the New York Times editorial comments since the 1619 project has come out, have been that uh, in some cases they recognized that the material they presented was not completely accurate, 
but they decided that it was not worth changing it. And I'll give you a quick example. There's this issue of when slaves first came to the United States and how uh, Spanish explorers brought slaves to Florida before it was even one of the colonies, you know, well before. And well before um, the 1619 when um, slaves were brought to the Virginia colony. Um, so the, the Times in their editorial response said that they would not changed the way that they characterized the importance of 1619 because they said that's the narrative that they believe that students should be taught. They believe that in order to place slavery at the center of U.S. history, they want to center it around 1619, irrespective of whether or not slaves arrived on the continent before. And that, I think, is, I would argue, that is revisionist history at its at its uh, essence, right, is that you are revising a set of facts that we should be able to make decisions on according to a narrative that we have in our minds. Well, uh, you know, it's not so much whether the, uh, there are errors in the history. Um, every history has errors in it, uh, but it's the, it's the conception, whether or not the conception is, uh, you know, has a, a historical accuracy, whether it reflects the actual experiences of the American people. And so that's the, that's the question that's at stake here. And from a Marxist point of view, it probably is. And I think one of the things about your report uh, about uh, uh, critical race theory, which has been released by the Heritage Foundation, um, one thing about your report is that uh, you point out that really this whole critical race theory idea is in is deeply embedded in Marxist theory more generally. Well, there's a lineage here, right? The original critical theorists were German Marxists from the 1920s who were trying to resurrect Marxism after uh, the German working class, I think, uh, did not stage a revolution the way that they felt that they should. And I'm talking about Max Horkheimer, uh, eventually Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno, a group, a, group, a group like that. And they came to the United States. They paired their Marxist ideas with the um, relativistic kind of postmodern concepts that you were talking about earlier about a skepticism towards objectivity and things like that. They influenced um, legal scholars in particular in post-secondary education and, and this when applied. So when you apply critical theory to American law, it results in a skepticism of the rule of law and of a constitutional founding for that rule of law. Uh, the critical race theorists, so Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Angela Harris and others in the 19, late 1980s they felt, and they've written and said this, so I'm not, I'm summarizing their words, they said that the critical legal theorists made an advance in critical theory, made an advance with Marxism, but they didn't go far enough because the reason for this division between oppressors and the oppressed in the United States is because of race. It's not just about economic classes, although it is, there's, that's still there, but it's in addition to, it is this constant perpetual racial conflict. Uh, Derek Bell, uh, the subtitle for his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well is the Permanence of Racism. And so that shows you what the, how they feel about this issue, right? There's a sense of irredeemability in the United States when it comes to racism. Well, so in the, one of the ways this manifests itself is in the interpretation of economic growth in the United States in the 19th century and in the early part of the 20th century, uh, especially. Uh, but 
down to the president, which has been, you know, extraordinary. The United States has become by far the wealthiest country in the world, even though it was a sort of a, a bunch of little uh, colonies uh, on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean 200 years earlier, really is, a, is a, an absolutely unbelievable story of the economic growth. The Europeans couldn't believe it by the end of the 19th century that this, this land across the sea was now threatening them with economic power they'd never seen before. So now this uh, 1619 project says, well, that was built on the black on the back of slaves and, and serfs. Uh, that really, had it not been for slavery, we could not have had the economic growth that we experienced in the 19th century. Is that at all possible? Well, I think some outstanding research on this question has been done by um, a gentleman named John uh, Sibley Butler, who's down at the University of Texas. And uh, he uh, wrote a terrific book about entrepreneurship in Black America. And he makes the point that there were uh, Black individuals who were millionaires before slavery, even during the slave period, and uh, certainly afterwards. And he talks about how there were business owners who were Black and had white employees. And that this explains that under even under capitalism, right, which is so condemned by the 1619 Project, it does uh, create a path for people to be successful regardless of elements of bigotry and prejudice elsewhere, right? We have to remember that many, most of the Northern states had either abolished slavery or set slavery on the path to abolition by the end of the 18th century, right, or the early parts of the 19th century. And so that means that you had the ability for individuals who are black to be successful during those periods. And so um, I've written in my book, uh, which will be out in March called Splintered Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth, that this is a element I think of uh, persistence and um, uh, struggle and bravery that we should accept and even celebrate as a part of the American story, right? We should be able to celebrate those who are successful even among the worst of conditions. Um, so I commend to you, um, uh, Dr. Butler's work. I, I think uh, his book about entrepreneurship is exceptional. And, um, and I think that that really goes a long way to explain how we talk about the success of Americans who are black in American history. I think the, it's, not, it, it's, it's not surprising in a sense that the 1619 project is being introduced into the classroom um, in the way that it is, because, um, you know, critical race theory sort of emphasizes uh, poetry, fiction, uh, drama, storytelling, parables. That's, that's the stuff of journalism. That's the stuff of the New York Times. That, that's why, you know, a journalist is trained to look for material that has shock value, not necessarily, it's sort of like, you know, uh, a dog bites man is not a story, right? Man, man bites dog, that's a story. So uh, that's what you look for as a journalist. And so isn't critical race theory just being used by, by uh, a newspaper to propound journalistic propaganda? Well, and that's what, when they were awarded the Pulitzer Prize, they were not awarded the Pulitzer for history. They were awarded the Pulitzer for editorial rating. Um, I think, uh, and, and even that I, I'm, I'm surprised at, given uh, the, the errors that we were talking about earlier in the text. But uh, I, I think what, you know, for uh, uh, educators, it's important that they recognize um, 
uh, how creative writing can be used to affect people's emotions and their perspective on the world. And I think when you take a perspective that is so cynical about America's founding and so cynical about the nature of capitalism, the nature of agency, personal responsibility for your actions, uh, you take a great risk, right? You take a risk that you're gonna be teaching students not to be prepared to create a future for themselves, but to depend on a system that needs to be resisted in order for them to be successful. I mean, I think that's ultimately one of the lessons from the 1619 Project is that there are permanent flaws in the American system that uh, require resistance, that require uh, activism. And that is parallel with the action civics that we see from critical race theory. It's parallel to the writing of bell hooks, uh, as well as uh, Angela Harris, who I mentioned earlier, um, who are trying to persuade us here that this system is out to get us and it creates a perpetual victimhood, which is, it's, it's unfair for students to, to grow up in a society where they feel like someone is always out to get them. And I think that, that's, a, that's a frightening lesson. Well, you know, maybe we're exaggerating. There's a, a report by your colleague, uh, Jay Green at Heritage. And uh, he says, he's looked at what uh, teachers uh, say when they're polled in a, in a representative survey. And he says, well, yes, it's true that teachers tend to the left of the average American, but they're not ideologues. Uh, they're, they're, they are not gonna buy into this divisive uh, ideology or, or curriculum. So have we exaggerated here? Well, Jay's other research is just as fascinating. He finds that in K-12 schools, especially big school districts, something like 79% of school districts with 100,000 students or more have a, a chief diversity officer or some other embellished title like that. Uh, and same as in higher ed, right? Among the power five athletic conferences, Jay found that there's an average of 45 staff just to work on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. So we essentially have, as Jay describes, you've created this sort of um, uh, constituency to protect these ideas in public institutions. Uh, I, I would argue that um, the special interest groups, particularly teachers unions and the National School Board Association have made it very clear what their position is on critical race theory. They have hired Ibram Kendi to give lectures for their own staff and members. They have the NEA, uh, the nation's largest teachers union, earlier this year said that they would make sure that critical race theory remains taught in the classroom. Uh, National School Board Association had a similar episode recently that's worth going to at length if we have time. But, you know, these interest groups, I believe, are pushing this kind of ideology on their members, which, you know, filters its way down through school boards and to schools. But, you know, these diversity training uh, programs and inclusion programs, maybe they're just uh, trying to uh, make sure that people uh, are courteous to their colleagues and they are not, um, you know, engaging in racist uh, actions inadvertently that they haven't really realized that they're doing. Maybe they're calling people by their first name when they shouldn't be, or maybe they're calling them by their last name when they shouldn't be. But, you know, can you really equate the teaching of critical race theory with the uh, development of uh, programs for inclusion? 
Well, I mean, I, I'll give you two things for that. I, first, I think the research on diversity training programs is not promising. In fact, there's a wide, a wide range, a large library of research showing that diversity training programs are not effective at changing people's opinions or behavior. Uh, in fact, there are studies uh, from Harvard, no less, showing that um, you have uh, people do not change their opinions immediately afterwards. And it often creates resentment when you tell individuals that they are guilty of things that they didn't do themselves, but because of the color of their skin, they may be associated with. So I think we are, are right to be highly skeptical of the effectiveness of any diversity programs. Uh, Education Week has, has recorded as much as well. And then I think, uh, you know, on the, uh, the second thing is uh, that when we um, look at the effect that critical race theory has on K-12 activities, we find things like mandatory affinity groups, we find assignments that ask students to acknowledge uh, their own sense of privilege. Those are both the subjects of lawsuits right now. There's a lawsuit in Evanston, Illinois, where a teacher is saying that there was a mandatory affinity group that they were forced to participate in. There's a lawsuit out in Nevada, where a parent says that her son was required to acknowledge his own privilege on a school assignment before he could graduate. So those are both things that as described would violate the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So if that is what critical race theory, and I believe that that's what critical race theory is, is trying to do, um, then we should say that really when, when you get down to it, you get to the very essence, we want to protect children from discrimination, no matter how it surfaces. It's not right for people to be judged by the color of their skin. And if critical race theory is insistent on doing that, why then there is, uh, according to surveys, uh, broad support for uh, saying that, no, we don't believe that children should be judged that way. Well, you also uh, talk about uh, the disciplinary practices that the federal government has recommended that schools follow. Uh, I think Trump withdrew them. I think Biden's talking about reinstating them. I don't really know exactly where we are on all of that, but there's certainly a push out there that sort of says, if you look at the world, you see that Black students are more likely to be suspended and expelled than, than white students are. Um, so um, is critical race theory, uh, which is now saying they should be suspended at equal rates, not at disproportionate rates. Uh, it, it, is this a way in which critical race theory is affecting our educational system? Yes, I absolutely believe that. And I've seen research that says as much. I mean, I have found studies uh, from UCLA, in fact, showing that uh, disparate impact, which is the theory that we're really talking about here, is in line with uh, critical race theory's uh, central principles. And this idea that if you have um, disproportionate ratios of, of effects on people, that that is evidence of systemic racism and must be um, uh, must be stopped. And so I, you know, the courts have, have agreed with my opinion here that, you know, really what we're saying is that just because there may be disparate, disproportionate effects, it does not mean that there is necessarily racism at play. Take, for example, this issue of school discipline, right? You oftentimes, so, so start with that minority students are not evenly distributed around the country, right? I mean, oftentimes minority students are concentrated in urban areas, right? Chicago, LA, Detroit, et cetera. And so if you have schools that have a high proportion of their students who are minority, so a minority majority school, and those students are disciplined, um, suspended or expelled at particular rates, 
why then those rates are likely to be higher than the rates for students who are not um, of a minority ethnicity in the US. So you've suddenly turned on its head this idea that we should be um, disciplining students based on their behavior, right? We need to be protecting students from their peers who could be uh, dangerous or violent. Well, yes, but it also might very well be the case that uh, black students are suspended for the same actions that white students uh, undertake and are sort of reprimanded instead. Uh, that certainly is a possibility out there, is it not? It is. I think that it's very hard to, to measure, though, and to discover, um, is there really racism at play in the way that teachers and principals decide on exclusionary discipline? And I've actually, having looked at the literature of this, uh, I continue to see that the studies, they keep trying to produce studies that try to check off every other possible explanation for why the rates of discipline are what they are in the United States, as if they are searching for this sort of um, it, uh, completely conclusive evidence that it has to be racism and nothing else. And I, I just, I don't think that, I don't, well, I don't think that's a good approach to, to research to start, but I also believe that um, the best way for us to, you know, keep students safe is to be treating them based on their behavior and, and based on their actions in the classroom. There, look, there's research as well that shows um, that when uh, students who have committed dangerous or even violent actions in the classroom and are allowed to stay, that puts their peers at risk and it actually uh, lowers the academic achievement uh, of the peers who are uh, in the class with them. Well, finally, let me ask you this. You know, uh, many people in the United States believe that the United States is the cradle of liberty. That's what, what a lot of them were taught when they went to school. They, they, they see it in their daily lives. Are they ever gonna accept any such doctrine as critical race theory as the basis for civic education in their schools? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, that the idea that critical race theory is something that students should be made aware of at age appropriate levels, right, in high school uh, or in, in college um, in order to understand why it is so, uh, why it so conflicts with the uh, essence, I think, of America's identity as you just described, I think there's a place for that. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe that we should be looking for ways to ban ideas from the classroom. By the same token, I think ultimately what policymakers should be considering is how do we protect individuals from discriminatory actions or discriminatory projects? And these mandatory affinity groups that I was telling you about, as well as these kind of reports of whiteness walks or um, uh, the idea that I, I've, seen, I've seen school board statements saying that their goal is for uh, equity of outcomes for all students which should not be encouraging to students at the top end of the spectrum, right? Because that means that you're gonna be driving them down while you're also trying to lift uh, you know, those at the bottom up. I mean, we should be trying to give great opportunities to every child. Well, you know, it's a lot easier to uh, get equality by uh, not teaching the, uh, the capable people. If you don't teach them, they're not <laughs> be capable. So uh, that's a pretty easy thing to accomplish. Uh, so <laughs> there's two routes to equality, and that's uh, that's to give uh, opportunities to everyone and to uh, 
make uh, special efforts with those who are uh, facing particular challenges. But uh, yeah, no, thank you, Jonathan, for uh, joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. So I've been speaking with Jonathan Butcher, uh, the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation and co-author of a recent Heritage Report entitled Critical Race Theory, The New Intolerance and Its Grip on America. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a new podcast on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange.